Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario Science Advisory Table released modeling last Friday that suggests case counts should remain stable as long as some public health measures stay in place. Now, with that being said, Ford is aiming to end COVID restrictions by March of next year. Does this timeline have any scientific merit? Well, we'll talk about that. Former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien says Justin Trudeau would have been better served if he reached out for guidance for his party's old guard for advice. Professor Wayne Petrosi joins us to discuss that. And the Rogers family riff continues to take new twists. We cover the latest in the battle for Rogers communications. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We're moving on here in Ontario. You heard the announcement late last week uh, about the province's uh, steps from moving out of this altogether, moving out of the COVID restrictions. And uh, we got some modeling projections from the province at the same time. The good news is the warnings don't appear as dire as they have been in previous reports. Sandy Salerno has some details. Modeling released by Ontario Science Table shows that cases of COVID-19 have been falling and continue to do so in most health units thanks to a combo of vaccination and public health measures. Hospitalizations and ICU emissions haven't seen a surge and have remained stable since the last projections were made at the end of September. But if we want to keep it that way or see cases go down even further, especially as winter and the flu season approach, the table suggests we need to maintain some of the current health measures we're following, including masking. The worst case scenario shows if there's a substantial increase increase in contacts, we could surpass 600 new COVID-19 cases a day by the end of November. Sandy Salerno, Global News. Well, as Sandy mentioned, certainly better news than we've heard in some of the past uh, modeling suggestions and projections that we've had. Joining us to analyze this and uh, try to chart the way forward here, I'm pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Peter Uni. Uh, Dr. Uni is the director of Ontario Science Table and a professor of medicine epidemiology at the University of Toronto. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for being with us today. Good morning. Thanks for having me again. As we mentioned just a second ago, a different uh, tone, I think, and maybe some different uh, feelings about this. Are you, doctor, comfortable with where we are right now and and the plan forward? Oh, absolutely. Um, Look, we really are on a great trajectory. Why is this? We, if you remember our situation, we had mid of August where case, case numbers really just climbed up daily, more cases and more. Uh, this was a result of the mobility and the contacts we had around 20th of July or so. And that's the point now. Since 20th of July, our mobility and our contacts are flat. It's always about the same. But since then, we have fully vaccinated 2.5 million people. That's a lot. And that gives you a lot of protection. And what we see now is also that the vaccines right now seem to protect even more than what we expected. And therefore, we could afford opening schools, things work out. We may be able to afford now dropping capacity limits in sports arenas. So far, it still looks great. And uh, now we're just, uh, you know, taking the next step, which from my perspective could have been a slightly later than, than what it is, but we can easily just deal with it right now. And that's dropping capacity limits in restaurants, bars and gyms. Let me ask you about the vaccine, if I could, doctor, because there's been, I think, some mixed messaging about that. You know, we're starting to hear stories now about efficacy and, you know, the longer that after that second vaccine, you may need a third booster, especially for people who may be uh, compromised because of existing conditions. We get that. But I'm also hearing that here in Canada, we actually delayed uh, the time between the first and second vaccines, and that may actually have worked to our advantage. Is, is there evidence of that? 
Yes, there is actually. Um, uh, probably it, it really has worked to our advantage. You know, over time, the, the immune system can mature a bit. And if it has enough time between the first and the second dose, this could really make a difference. And then, you know, of course, there's also this other simple fact, which is that if most people actually got their second dose only in uh, June and July, and August, basically, this means that their protection just uh, because of the second dose being delayed is just uh, much, much longer. So right now, what we're talking about is that we probably for, for the overwhelming majority of people, we will make it to six to eight months after the second dose and will still be really well protected. What we need to think about is those people who got their doses early, you know, in January, February, uh, already the second dose had smaller intervals and people, of course, who are you know, in vulnerable places in terms of their age, their immune system, the setting they're in. And this, of course, also uh, will include our healthcare workers. Uh, which is surprising. I'm, I'm, I, I know it's a, a minority of people, especially in the healthcare field, uh, that have not received vaccinations uh, as of yet. And, and some of them are getting pretty vocal about it. Uh, are you surprised that there's been as much pushback on this as there has been? You mean now regarding uh, vaccine mandates, etc.? Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, look, it, this is basically just a reflection of the society. That's also what we see among healthcare workers and hospital staff in general. And we just need to, ma to make sure that we have discussions, ongoing discussions with, uh, with uh, people, especially in these settings, just also in the future. Again, what we see also, you know, and I think we need to distinguish there a little bit is we have communities. Uh, who experienced oppression in the past, systemic racism, other discrimination in the past. We should look at that differently, you know, these communities and those people who just have some sort of weird beliefs about why they don't want the vaccine, develop some sort of fantastic theories that don't have to do, do anything with reality. If we keep these two people, uh, these two groups of people just uh, separate and think about that for those who have, who have a real, you know, um, reason to distrust the system, for those, we need to have a different approach and we just need to continue to uh, to basically bring the information to them, have individual discussions. And I think we can reach a lot more people still with vaccines. Well, we certainly hope so. And, and I know that uh, with the projections that were released a couple of months ago now, uh, we were talking about herd immunity, which is something that, of course, has, has come up ever since the vaccine program started to roll out. Uh, that number went up to about 90, 91, 92%, depending on who you talk to about these days. We're not there yet here in Canada. We're still about 10 points below that right now. Is that concerning? Well, look, I, I stopped talking about herd immunity when Delta uh, was around the corner and mm -hmm. uh, was threatening to you know, take over the world. That's the point right now with the current vaccine. It's very difficult to achieve herd immunity just through vaccination. This may change again once we have a third dose and once we perhaps have a different vaccine. But right now it will actually be, you know, the stable situation will only be achieved not only if we have vaccinated most people, but for those people who don't want to get vaccinated, if most of those are uh, were infected, that's the point. So we need to look at it a bit differently. Delta has changed the game. So I wouldn't even use the term herd immunity anymore. But what we see right now in the province is excellent news. We have indirect protection. So if we do a little bit of masking and vaccine certificates, this could bring us a long, long way. 
Uh, I don't want to drag you into the political end of this, uh, but there have been some concerns about the, the children's vaccine. The good news, of course, is they seem to be very, well, Pfizer's already applied for permission uh, to start distributing, which is great. And that may not come for a while yet, but the fact that they're there is, is I think, gratifying news. But there are some detractors, as you've heard, doctor, that are saying, look, you know, it's not necessary. Kids hardly ever get COVID anyway. How important is it for us to start using vaccines uh, once they're okayed and once they're given a thumbs up uh, for, for us to vaccinate uh, those under 12s? Well, look, uh, it's really clear that it can help us to keep the schools open and it can reduce the risk. Um, the low risk, I agree with that part of, you know, having kids in our ICUs or in hospitals because of COVID. Um, I would agree, of course, with people who just give pushback and say, look, the risk is uh, much lower in children. That's true. But when I look at the risk that I have, uh, you know, for instance, with my uh, seven-year-old here, that they, that they could actually just experience COVID and then a myocarditis or a pericarditis, you know, an inflammation of the heart muscle, um, then this risk with COVID is much higher than the risk of having a myocarditis uh, because of the vaccine. And again, it's important. The alternative here is not nothing and the paradise. The alternative to not being vaccinated is getting infected. And that's what we also need to keep in mind when we talk about kids. The other part is we only have 93 pediatric ICU beds in this province, and most of these beds are needed for something else, not COVID. So we have a genuine interest to bring uh, the uh, vaccines to uh, to uh, children 5 to 11 right now, offer them. And of course, parents have a liberty to say, okay, we wait still. I would hope that a lot of parents actually just take the opportunity and uh, get their kids vaccinated. That's what we will do with our two youngest ones who are uh, seven and nine. And, and listen, I, I know some of the people who have younger or older kids in that, you know, can remember the days when, and, and still today, I guess, uh, children still need to be vaccinated before they can attend school. I mean, that's against uh, polio, rubella, and a number of other things like that. Uh, those are rare too, doctor, but they're rare because of the vaccine. Is it's, it's 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 you have to have one without the other, don't you? Yeah. So uh, again, you know, it's not that easy when you look at the at the, the the setup. It's clear that if you have these classical vaccines around, that uh, if if uh, if people. Um, if the public health units actually just notice, okay, your kids are not vaccinated yet, you start to have the discussions and you need to get vaccinated and so on. But it's a situation, of course, that is not completely comparable, you know, to an outbreak situation with a new vaccine. And uh, we just need to look at, into that a little bit differently. From my perspective, this is about making sure that we can keep the school safe and giving the kids and the parents an opportunity to give an additional layer of protection through these vaccines. I really hope that a lot of, of uh, parents actually understand how privileged we are that we can do that and they take the opportunity. If there are some who won't, that's okay. But this also then means, you know, after a while, we don't have to pay that much attention then anymore to all the, you know, school outbreaks, etc. the way we do that right now. Right now, we're aware of, we have a non-vaccinated population, more vulnerable. Therefore, we need to focus on keeping these school outbreaks to a minimum. Once we have had the opportunity to vaccinate, this game will change a bit. As we know, this is the day that that the capacity limits have been lifted in an awful lot of the places, restaurants, bars, nightclubs, things of this nature, even in high-risk settings, although the proof of vaccination is still much in effect. We were talking with a representative over in the UK in London this last past week, doctor. They were talking about how they did a similar thing there, although they basically 
I took masking off the table and everything else, and they saw a huge spike all of a sudden. Are, are we moving cautiously enough here? Because we don't want to see that happen here. Oh, you absolutely can't compare our situation with the one in the UK. You know, uh, I was there a few weeks ago and it was shocking to me. You know, there is nothing in place anymore. Forget it whatsoever. What we do here with the masking plus the vaccine certificates might just be enough to keep case number stable. We will see. I mean, we have this curveball now of the bad weather. You know, weather is changing. It's colder. People move indoors more. But perhaps we still have enough protection in place to keep our case number stable stable day by day. We will find out. And this is absolutely not comparable to the UK situation. It's silly what the UK does. And, you know, also other places such as Denmark or Finland, where you just uh, see that if you drop everything, including the masks and the certificates, things won't work. Case numbers are exploding. And, and this is what he was telling us too. I guess he just had lunch before he joined us on the program and said, no masking, no proof of vaccination, no anything in the, in the restaurant in which he went. So we, I guess we need to be cognizant of that. Uh, and, and with that in mind, uh, I, I guess there has to be some self-policing and self-enforcement about this as well. Uh, I had a football game this past weekend, of course, here in Hamilton, and uh, you, know, you have to show proof of vaccination, and which is fine, and you, I, that certainly increases the comfort level. But I saw an awful lot of people wandering around the stadium uh, without masks, and uh, that's yeah. not really what we should be doing. Yeah, this is just silly. You know, if people use their uh, hot dog or popcorn or drink just as an excuse not to wear a mask. But I think it's still, you know, something that can be worked on uh, just in the future. The point really is we have so much liberty in this province at very low case numbers. And for heaven's sake, we're at the end of October now. It goes really well. If we just continue a little bit of the right thing, you know, the restrictions are minimal. A mask. What is a mask? It's so trivial. If we just do that plus the vaccine certificates it could well be that things will look actually quite okay also at christmas for example we talked about the in in, in the modeling that you released late last week you talked about the three scenarios the worst to best uh, scenario uh if we continue with uh, as you mentioned the masking and the social distancing and of course the proof of vaccination you know in a lot of these other places are you, are you confident that we're going to be in a in a comfort zone i mean i, I think there's a, in, I think in some circles, an inevitability that as we head to the colder weather, we're probably going to see at least some kind of an increase. But is it manageable? I would believe it will be manageable. You know, one of the things that we need to be ready for is to revert some of the decisions we're making. So we're now moving on, you know, and we're pushing the envelope. We see less and less restrictions. And there will be a moment when there's a little bit too much, given the vaccination we have and given the change in weather, etc. Right now, we haven't reached that. It looks really good. If we start to see, you know, after, let's say, three to four weeks from now, that case numbers start to go up, then we might just need to reconsider some of the uh, measures we lifted. Is this, is but this it will be, be very little, you know, very I'm, little. We're hoping. And is it going to be done on a region by region basis? I mean, we've had what we call hotspots in, in other uh, times and then with the second and third waves and situations like that. Uh, so I would imagine it's going to be uh, very important to get that data from local public health offices. Yeah, look, it will make, of course, a difference whether your vaccine coverage is already way above 90% or just, you know, at 80 with the fully vaxxed people. So, you know, we here in Toronto, you guys in Hamilton, for example, which is not that exciting if it comes to our vaccine coverage. And it may be that we will need a little bit more um, public health measures than other places that are just uh, much in better shape than we are. 
Yeah, the numbers here are rather troubling, and here's hoping that uh, that uh, we can move those up in the next little while. In London, uh, similar situation too. Uh, doctor, always great to have you on the program. Uh, I, I, we're in a pretty good place right now. We're not out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, we seem to be trending in the right direction, I would think, right? Absolutely. Let's just keep doing the right thing. And that's what's happening out there. I see people really just uh, working on that and uh, enjoying their freedom at the same time. Doctor, as always, thank you for this. Stay well, and we'll talk again soon, I hope. You too. Bye-bye. Dr. Peter Uni, Director of Ontario Science Table and a Professor of Medicine and Epidemiology at the U of T. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. John Kretchen was... Uh, if you've not had any of the political shows on over the weekend, John Gretchen was front and center. We know a lot of them right now. He's got a new book coming out. Uh, so obviously you want to, you know, sell the book as much as you can. And uh, a number of interviews on CBC, CTV, and, uh, and other places right now. Uh, and he, uh, well, some people would suggest took some shots at Justin Trudeau. And this is a busy day up in Ottawa right now, a busy week for that matter in Ottawa. Uh, as uh, Michelle McQuig uh, reports, uh, the Trudeau team right now is getting down to the short strokes about who they're going to announce. It's supposed to be tomorrow who's going to be in the Trudeau cabinet. And, uh, well, a lot of secrets still about what's going on. Here's your report. Any hints of who might be in cabinet could begin trickling out today, since prospective ministers may start arriving in the national capital ahead of tomorrow's swearing-in ceremony. Trudeau has said there will be gender parity among the regionally balanced appointments. That means he has to find replacements for four female ministers who either lost their seats or did not seek re-election last month. Several ministers are likely interested in retaining their old portfolios, but Trudeau has only confirmed that Finance Minister Christia Freeland is staying put. Once sworn in, any new faces in new places will quickly try to get up to speed on their new files before Parliament resumes on November 22nd. Michelle McQuig, The Canadian Press. So that's one element of this. And then, of course, there's the, uh, well, the, the, the furor, I guess, that's been caused about some of the comments from former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien. Uh, his new book is called My Stories, My Times, Volume 2. Uh, but in that, he's not just talking about his time in, in office, in the corner office in Ottawa. He's also uh, commenting about what's been going on in the last couple of years with uh, Justin Trudeau. And uh, some rather interesting comments. Uh, the, the key, I guess, the takeaway here, the headline, is that uh, Jean Chrétien says uh, that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau would have been better served if he had sought guidance from his party's elder statesman, uh, that the current government has failed to reach out to him for advice, uh, suggesting that maybe that move may have uh, circumvented some of the uh, problems and some of the uh, the, the, the crises that uh, the, the Trudeau government has found themselves in. Uh, it's unusual for a former leader, especially a former leader of the same political party, uh, to comment about stuff like that, but here it is right in front of us. Is it going to cause some political damage, and, and how should uh, Justin Trudeau respond to this, and how should we as Canadians uh, respond to what the uh, former Prime Minister has to say? Uh, to talk about all of this, please to welcome to the program Wayne Petrosi. Wayne is a professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University. Uh, professor, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Well, good morning to you. This is unusual, isn't it, for a former prime minister, especially of the same political party, to be weighing in how the, how the, the current prime minister is actually doing business? Well, yeah, there is an element of surprise in that. But, uh, you know, having said that, uh, I think the key to the title of Mr. Kretzian's book is, is, is the, the phrase, my times. And I think that's the fundamental uh, uh, focus of, of what we should be looking at. Which is what he's talking about in the book. But, uh, you know, there was a quote there. I know when he was talking to Rosie Barton on, uh, on CBC the other day, uh, he, uh, he talked about the fact that, uh, that well, he, here's the quote. Trudeau and his team aspire to be reformists on a grand scale. 
their lack of experience for succeeding in that goal is more and more apparent, uh, which is kind of a backhanded smack, I guess, at, uh, at the form, or the current prime minister. Uh, is, is this a guy who's, uh, Mr. Kretchen, whose feelings are hurt, or does he think he's actually got something to contribute here? Well, I, I think two things. One, I'm, I'm guessing his feelings are hurt, but two, I think what Mr. Kretchen doesn't understand is that the political world he navigated in is utterly different from the political world that Justin Trudeau navigates in. Utterly different. It's like chalk and cheese. Maybe explain that. I, okay. I, I, I think I think you're going down the right road, Professor, but maybe okay. to our listeners explain that what what has changed and how it's changed. What has changed is during Mr. Kretchen's time, political career, 60s into the 90s, the reality was Canadians had a high level of trust in institutions and in political parties. Somewhere in the area of neighborhood, about 75% of Canadians who voted had long-term attachments to one of the political parties. So really, elections were fought over the 25% who might be persuaded to switch. Today, in Mr. Trudeau's time, just under 50% of Canadian voters consider themselves attached in any long-term sense to a political party. As a result, elections are much more volatile, results are incredibly volatile, and you just can't take things for granted. Adding to that is the completely different media environment. Today's 24-hour news cycle really has corroded public trust. And not that the media has done anything wrong. It's just that the, once I'm running a 24-hour cable show, I need a lot more content than I did when I was doing a major uh, broadcast in the evening and, and, uh, you know, for, for, on, on TV. Mm-hmm. So you've got a much more... Uh, much larger and, and diverse media uh, industry that's looking for content on an ongoing basis and who want new content. So, you know, the days are past where you could make an announcement and it would uh, dominate for two, three days. Unless it's something absolutely amazing, it slides beneath the waves, you know, eight hours later, 10 hours, 12 hours, to 24 hours later. It's gone. So Mr. Trudeau is in a much different environment, and, you know, uh, I'm not suggesting he's done great or poor or whatever. I'm suggesting that the world is different, and Mr. Kretchen doesn't seem to have grasped that. I mean, I'm getting the sense as I watched part of the interview anyway the other day. Uh, the, it's this attitude of, you know, I'm, I'm the sage advisor here. You know, I've been there, done that. I won majority governments. I mean, he, it, it, as most politicians do, Mr. Kretchen had an ego uh, and was proud of his accomplishments uh, and, and, and figures, I have, I have wisdom to impart to this young guy who's, who seems to be having his problems right now. It's not too specific about that, but uh, I guess to your point, though, if you look at the title of the book again, My Stories, My Times, Mr. Kretchen's administrations were not without controversy, too. I, I, I guess you tend to gloss over that once you leave office, though, don't you? Yeah, you, yeah, you, you do tend to. He certainly had his issues. Uh, Shawinigate comes to mind. Uh, the Again, you know, his uh, very unsettled relationship with his leadership rivals, uh, even though he brought them into cabinet, none, it never did resolve things, and, and we know how that ended. So, you know, Mr. Christian certainly uh, would have some experience of, of that kind of uh, rough seas that uh, Mr. Trudeau has experienced. But I, I think fundamentally, really, the, the, where Mr. Christian kind of veers off into almost a form of nostalgia is, is the sense that somehow the 
there is a there is a stability in the political system and in within the electorate and and there's a degree of trust in in institutions and parties that just isn't there anymore uh, and again to, to put that in perspective you see what's going on now uh, and you have to say, okay, you know, what would have John Kretchen have done? And well, he does weigh in on that. He talked to, uh, I guess, with the CBC, uh, CTV interview with Evan Solomon uh, about how he would have handled the situation with the two Michaels much differently. And and I got the sense, and again, we need some historical perspective here, though, yep. Professor. Uh, it seemed to me that John Kretchen had a rather acrimonious relationship with the United States and whichever government he was dealing with at that time. Uh, and and he seemed to have that seems to be coloring his opinion on how he would have heard. He essentially blames the United States for the two Michaels and everything that went on between Canada and China. Well, he does that. What he also does is again, he's rooted in a time when Canada Canadians saw themselves as having a special relationship with China because of Bethune and because of Canada recognizing China. You know, again, in Mr. Kretchen's time, there might have been some truth to that. Fast, fast forward to today, there's no truth to it. China could care less about Norman Bethune. Norman Bethune won't buy us a cup of coffee in Beijing. And the fact that Canada recognized China for UN purposes before other Western states, again, water under the bridge. Don't care. Good for you. You're finally getting realistic. But I don't owe you anything for that. And don't come to me thinking that I'm giving you some kind of special favors because you, you were the, you know, the country of origin of Norm Bethune or because you recognized us so early on in, over the question of UN status. So I think Mr. Kretchen, again, you know, there may have been some, something to that view in the 1970s. It, it really doesn't help you at all when it came to the two Michaels in 2018, 19, and 20. I mean, criticize or not criticize uh, Justin Trudeau for what he's done during his time in office, uh, as as people did with Stephen Harper in his time in office. But to put that in in, in context as well, Professor, uh, there was a lot of pressure, at least a lot of people assumed, that once Stephen Harper uh, came to power in 2006, uh, that he would build this bridge between another, you know, former great conservative prime minister, i.e. Brian Mulroney. And apparently the guys don't like each other very much. And I think Mr. Harper took the same attitude that maybe Mr. Trudeau is taking here right now, is that was then, this is now. Uh, you know, God bless you for what you did back then, but this is a different ballgame right now, and we don't necessarily need your expertise uh, in, in this situation. And and uh, I, I suppose that may cause some hurt feelings. I know Mr. Mulroney was upset that Mr. Harper uh, did not reach out to him. As a matter of fact, it seemed to be, you know, sending some uh, rather derogatory attitude toward the Mulroney administration at, at some times. Uh, but it, do, the, do the people of today's politics feel it's incumbent upon them to sever those ties with the past? You know, I don't think it's a matter of, of actually looking back and, and uh, thinking about should I cut, should I not cut with these relationships. I think the speed at which, you know, politics is conducted today, you know, makes that almost moot. You know, there, you don't even think about it. You don't have time. You've got things that are happening now, and people aren't responding the way they used to in the past, so there's no point looking back to see how you might react and how you might guess they'll re respond, because it's, it's simply a different world. Well, and your point about China, I think, maybe underscores that, doesn't it? Uh, as you mentioned, uh, the Canada-Chinese Chinese relations in Kretchen's time, as you say, was almost nostalgic about, you know, the, the Canadians going over there. You mentioned Bethune and others. Uh, it's it's a much different. China wasn't the world power it is now back in the, in, in the Kretchen days either. Uh, you know, they were, they were a, a, an inconvenience, and yeah, we had, 
stories about some human rights uh, problems over there. But I mean, their industry wasn't as powerful as it is right now. Their place in, in world trade wasn't as, as it's, a, it's a different ballgame altogether now. And I don't know if Mr. Christian grasps that. Yeah, you get the sense that, that, that he does, although he does in that interview acknowledge that, you know, today China is a superpower. Well, yeah, that's true. Uh, in, in, all, in, in, in most senses of that term, China is a superpower. Certainly, as you mentioned, economically, militarily, uh, and, and, you know, politically. Uh, but, you know, that, that alone, you know, doesn't explain the kind of blinders that Mr. Kretchen himself seems to be wearing. Uh, Mr. Trudeau couldn't leverage anything from Mr. Kretchen's past or time that would have helped him deal with the, uh, diplomatic hostages that were taken by the by the Chinese. And, and I mean, look, there's an argument to be made. I think you and I have talked about this in the past, uh, about the, uh, the the level of, of efficiency of some of the people on the Trudeau team over the years. And, you know, whether or not he's getting good advice or not. And, and there's a lot of evidence to the to the contrary, that maybe, you know, people like Gerald Butts and some others uh, may have not been as, as solid when it came to advising the prime minister as maybe they could have been. Maybe didn't have that broad-based knowledge. Who knows? Uh, and but that's happened with other administrations as well. But it's it's noteworthy here that while Mr. Kretchen seems to be upset about the fact that uh, that the prime minister is not reaching out to him, uh, we were just talking about the cabinet selections, which are going to be announced tomorrow. Uh, we're told that that uh, Justin Trudeau did reach out to to former interim leader Bob Ray uh, for some advice on this. So it's not as if they don't want advice from from sage uh, politicians. I guess you can be selective about that, though, can't you? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, you, you want to seek the advice that you think uh, can come from people who you believe have a, a full, complex understanding of the situation you're currently in. And it, it's, I, I suspect that that doesn't apply in terms of what Mr. Trudeau thinks of uh, Mr. Kretzian. And, uh, you know, I, I think it, 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 it bears repeating you know, Mr. even when we just talk about advice, you know, uh, in Mr. Kretzian's time, you know, really two names with, with, you know, in that period, say, 60s, 70s to the 90s, two names came up. The rainmaker, Keith Davies, who ran liberal campaigns, and Eddie Goldenberg, uh, who was, you know, a confidant for, for decades of Mr. Kretzian. Uh, again, you know, we're past the time where you could have that kind of outsized influence of, of a couple of individuals, as was the case back then. And and it happened. You're right. Politically, Dalton Camp back in the early days of the Conservatives, uh, back in the early '60s, uh, mm-hmm. Hugh Siegel, Senator Hugh Siegel, uh, major influence, of course, in the around the the Mulroney times as well. So there there were always, as you said, those those backroom types that were kind of not necessarily pulling the strings, but certainly had a great deal of influence. And that doesn't seem to be there anymore. Uh, I, I guess you know. I, I, at first, I was kind of ticked off at, the, at Mr. Gretchen or anybody who would take shots at the current leader. Because uh, it usually doesn't happen. Um, but on the other hand, I guess we have to put this in perspective. He's trying to sell a book right now, isn't he? That's for sure. And nothing sells better than conflict. Uh, and he hasn't shied away from stepping on people's toes in the past. Uh, but, but uh, you know, the old the idea of, you know, is he doing what he said he was going to do? I don't remember him reaching back too much. I mean, his his <laughs> old boss was, was Justin Father's dad. And, and I don't remember him reaching out to any great extent. Uh, Kretchen's always tried to pretend that he was his own man and didn't need uh, the the blessing of any former leader in a situation like that. So I suppose uh, when the roles are reversed, uh, you have to you know use the same criterion. I would think you would, and and if if that was the case, then yeah, Mr. Kretchen wouldn't have had much to write about. 
<laughs> well, he's into volume two, so I guess he's got something to say anyway, Professor. Okay. I wish him Godspeed with the book, but uh, I don't know that this is going to resonate. I mean, this made headlines over the weekend because of some of his comments. Uh, I, to use the old uh, political phrase and journalistic phrase, it's not really story with legs, though, is it? I know it isn't. No, it doesn't have legs. You and I, you wouldn't dream of calling somebody uh, two days from now to talk about this. And I won't either. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Professor, thanks so much for this. Great talking with you again today. You too. Thanks so much. Take care. Professor Wayne Petrosi from uh, Ryerson University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This private power struggle has become very, very public after Edward Rogers was removed as chairman of the board at Rogers Communications. And uh, he's not going quietly into that good night. Uh, he's declaring himself to be the boss. And he says, you know what? You can't fire me. I'm firing all of you. And he appointed his own board of directors. It comes as the company is trying to get a proposed $26 billion merger with Shaw Communications done. Uh, and this power struggle at the top is, is more than just uh, a little bit of a, an aberration here. There's something big going on. Uh, Global's and Gaviola has the story. It's a family feud. It's a failed corporate coup all rolled into one. Okay, let's start with Edward Rogers. He's the son of the late Ted Rogers, who founded the telecom company. Edward Rogers reportedly tried to oust the current CEO, Joe Natale. Now, you may have heard that Natale reportedly found out about all this via a pocket dial. It seems kind of fitting for the head of Canada's biggest wireless player. Now, Edward Rogers has been ousted as chairman in a vote by board members, which includes his mother and two sisters. But he's still on the board as a company director. And hours after all those developments, Edward announced a plan to replace five directors in a move to help him regain full power. All of this brings up questions about corporate governance at Rogers, which is waiting for the regulatory green light of its purchase of rival Shaw and Gaviola Global News. Uh, yeah, this is this is like soap opera stuff. I mean, this is like, you know, J.R. Ewing in Dallas all over again, except there's a lot of money at play here. Uh, and this is as you waste a telecommunications giant in this country. So what is happening and what what what's going to happen once the dust settles here? Uh, joining us to talk about this is Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGroot School of Business at McMaster University. Marvin, always a pleasure. Thanks for being with us today. I'm glad to be with you today, Bill. You, you'll need to keep your aspirin handy, I think. <laughs> well, as I mentioned just before you joined us, uh, this goes on, I'm sure, all the time with big, huge corporations, but it's usually done behind closed doors. How did this thing spill over into the public such as, like this? Well, I, I'm actually not sure it does happen all the time in the corporate sector. Uh, governance is usually a fairly well-regulated, well-rehearsed process. I teach governance in a program we have at McMaster called the Director's College, where we teach people how to be good directors and good chairs of boards. We're actually trying to avoid this behavior. So I think this is why it stands out so much, Bill, because this really is the aberration rather than the norm. And as you pointed out, this is not being played out in some, shall we say, small hometown company, but this is a major Canadian telecommunications player. They're in the midst of a $28 billion, let me use that word again, billion with a B, $28 billion takeover of Shaw Communication to perhaps then uh, start to rival Bell in terms of its size. And what we're seeing is sort of the keystone cops in charge of the, of the uh, board. Uh, this is rare. I haven't seen anything like this. Uh, you'd have to go back 20, 30 years to see anything like this. As you, as, since you teach this stuff, I'm glad to offer that perspective on this. There's a, there's a plan of succession for all these major corporations, isn't there? I mean, if, if in this case, Ted Rogers were, passes on or yep. which something should happen, 
they already pretty much know this is the game plan. Here's what's going to happen. Doesn't that happen with most corporations? <laughs> yes, it does. So let's just talk about what Mr. Rogers did. Ted Rogers, of course, the founder of Rogers Communication, very powerful man in his own right, died a few years ago. And this was the structure that he left behind. He left behind what are known as Class A voting shares. You and I can't buy those. Those are actually what are owned by the family, and they are the ones that control the direction of the company. The family, this is Edward Rogers, his mother, and two sisters own 95% of the Class A shares. Now, you and I can buy shares in Rogers Corporation, but they're called Class B shares. You can't vote on anything. So it's in essence like we're in the back seat of the car while somebody else is driving. We can take advantage of, of their success as they go, but we can't actually help shape their success in any way. That's left to this family-owned group of shares. Now, to have a proper board, this is what they've done. There are nine people on the Rogers board. There are the four family mom- members, mother, son, two daughters, and then five external uh, uh, independent board members added to the mix. And why Ted did it this way is he thought, you know, his family might be clever people, but they aren't necessarily the brightest people in the world. Let's make sure we have some other good people on the board. So when we're talking about strategic moves, what have you, we can get a nice, broad, diverse point of view. And all of this seemed to be going quite swimmingly with Edward Rogers as the chair of the board and the other independent members until about Oh, six to eight weeks ago, and as as your reporter had noted, this was when we learned that uh, for whatever reason, Mr. Rogers had um, decided that the current CEO, a fellow named Joe Natale, needed to be replaced. He'd um, approached the chief financial officer. That was his favorite candidate. But, of course, the chair of the board can't replace the CEO. The CEO works for the entire board. So Edward took his case to the entire board, and the entire board said no. We don't agree with you. We think Joe Natale is the right guy to get the Shaw venture closed. We, we don't want to change horses in the middle of this. The Shaw family, who's in the midst of selling their communications company, they had also indicated they enjoyed working with Joe Natale, and they didn't want any changes at the top. Well, Edward said, oh, really? That's the way you feel about it? Well, then, then, then I'm going to replace you independent board members. That led to a meeting last week in which the board said, no, no, you're not replacing those independent board members. We're replacing you as chair of the board. And get this, Bill, it was Edward's mother who moved the motion to remove him as chair of the board. Just think what Christmas is going to be like this year at the (laughs) Rogers household when mom says the son shouldn't be chair. How did Edward uh, react to that? Edward said, I don't, I don't believe this. Sure, you have your vote, but as far as I'm concerned, I'm still chair. So just yesterday, uh, uh, Edward Rogers uh, called a meeting of his board, his five independent members who have no status whatsoever, to, to sort of direct strategy. It has no meaning whatsoever. Any good lawyer would tell you that, and yet he's doing these things. I do not understand why. Uh, Mama, uh, who is Laura Rogers that you just referenced, actually issued an official statement on this. And uh, this is about her son. Uh, Keep this in mind. Uh, Here's the quote. Edward, unfortunately, continues to proceed down a misguided and miscalculated path, which leads nowhere productive and puts his own interests ahead of those of Rogers' employees, customers, and shareholders. He should stop immediately, as his behavior simply serves to underscore his seemingly wanton disregard for good governance. Uh, hardly a ringing endorsement from mom, is it? <laughs> no, no. That's a very polite way of saying, I think he's lost his marbles. <laughs> yeah, that's about it. 
You know, we don't. We just do not understand what what's driving all of this, especially at this various precarious time. Now, let me explain again the drama going on here. You know, Rogers wants to buy Shaw, so uh, this is this is something that has to be approved by the government. It takes one major player out of the telecommunications market. You and I have talked about, we have felt that there needs to be more players in the telecommunications market. So it's not necessarily going to be a slam dunk from Ottawa to approve this, but it becomes less of a slam dunk with Edward acting somewhat erratically. Same thing with the Shaw people. They thought they were selling their company to a nice, well-run, well-oiled machine. And now you've got this going on at the top. Trust me, Bill, Shaw is getting phone calls from other players, even American players that are saying, well, if this deal's in some trouble, we'd sure like to talk to you about buying your company, Verizon or you know, T-Mobile or who, who knows whatever American player you want. This is far from done. And what was looking like a smooth, a very clever merger in Canadian business history is now all in jeopardy because of the actions of just one person, Edward Rogers. And and uh, one last little wrinkle, Bill, those A-class shares I talked about are held in a family trust. Uh, so uh, Edward is still chair of the family trust. We are expecting any day now a meeting of the family trust. And once again, probably mom is going to move to uh, uh, remove him as chair of the family trust because of these actions. We just we just cannot explain why he's choosing to do this. And by the way, you get into this corporate stuff here, and it's it's rather intricate. And I mean, even our parent company, Chorus, I think it had some involvement uh, with Shaw some years ago. And it, this is like a way about, about too many floors above my head. What's going on here? Uh, but here's you mentioned about alternatives, and I wanted to ask you about that. And I'm glad you brought that up. If Shaw gets some cold feet and says, you know what, maybe this isn't such a good idea, we still want to sell. Uh, they're pretty limited as to what they can do. You mentioned that the, you know places like Verizon and, and, and T-Mobile and some of these American companies might be interested. But again, that would have to get government approval. And they're very reticent to bring in players uh, outside of Canada. There's a lot of inbreeding in the telecommunications business in this country at Marvin. Yikes. And they don't seem to want any outside players in. Well, this this would become a challenge, so let's just quickly go through it. The largest telecommunications firm is Bell. If Bell suddenly said they wanted to buy Shaw, pretty good chance Ottawa would say, no, we don't want to put more power in the hands of Bell. So then you've got Rogers and TELUS. Rogers seemed to be a good logical fit, but if that falls apart, would TELUS be interested? Another uh, company that was sort of based in the West, Shaw is based primarily in the West. So I could see TELUS making a play, but then that's it. You kind of run out after those three companies, and if Shaw really does want to, for whatever reasons, uh, exit this marketplace, the Shaw family, I should say, wants to exit this marketplace, if there was a serious bid from an American firm, I don't think Ottawa could automatically say no. You're right. They have been reluctant in the past to allow foreign players into the telecommunications market. But to save this deal, to stop it all from falling through, this could be an ideal opportunity for American company who wanted to come north of the border. We might not let you in if you were starting from scratch, but if you ride over the hill in the white knight role of this uh, deal with Rogers, we might very well let you play. So I think there is a unique opportunity here. If I'm an American, or even for that matter, a European company, or maybe an Asian company other than the name of Huawei, who comes riding <laughs> over the hill, I, I think Ottawa could look on it very favorably. Well, but past history would indicate that there might still be some problems, because we've seen this yes. in the past, wherever, especially a U.S. company, and let's use Verizon as the example, 
uh, who did actually try to make inroads here a number of years ago when the Harper government was in charge. I remember uh, it was Tony Clement was the minister, and he announced that they were going to open broadband up, and Verizon was the first one to say, hey, we'll take some of that. Uh, and 24 hours later, they said, no, oh, I'm sorry, we're not going to do it after yep. all. No Americans allowed in here. If Verizon were to express an interest in this, my guess is, even though like Shaw and Rogers and Bell and everybody are, are you know, somewhat acrimonious relationship, would band together like they have in the past and said, don't let the Americans in here because they know what that's going to do. It's competition. It's probably going to drive rates down and they don't want to see that. Yeah, and I, I agree with all of that analysis. only thing I would say is that, of course, we have a different administration in Washington. We've got concerns about Buy American provisions in uh, the infrastructure bill being proposed by Mr. Biden. One of those clauses might stop Canadian assembled electric vehicles from being purchased in the United States. If we are wanting to go down the United States and say, hey, you need to be open to Canadian business, it'd be a little difficult at the same time to say, but we're not letting American players come north of the border. I think there is a sort of a unique set of circumstances at this moment that might not exist six months from now and probably didn't exist six months ago. But at this moment, uh, if you needed a white knight and it happened to be an American white knight riding over the hill, and again, if the Shaw family, this wouldn't be a hostile takeover. It would only work if it was a friendly takeover. If yeah. they were supportive of it, I think Ottawa would be hard-pressed to say no under these unique circumstances. All right, in, in the couple of minutes we have left, how does this Rogers thing resolve itself? As you mentioned, uh, uh, Mama Rogers and the and the the legitimate board, if I can use that phrase, yeah. have decided we're just going to move on from this. Do they do they physically just uh, roll Ed out of the office and say that's it, buddy? It's over for you. Well, you know, Bill, I have to say we are a bit in unprecedented areas here. I have never seen a chair of a board, and now a former chair of a board, act in this way. Uh, if he's getting any legal advice, he's getting bad legal advice as it goes. And so, yeah, I think they very much have to change the locks and, and you know, keep them out of the building. Um, and, and uh, you know, as I say, family dinners will be very tough, but he is acting so erratically and, and illogically at the moment, I just do not have an explanation for what he's doing. Bill, we had another story today about, I guess this would be two months ago, that he was trying to get the, uh, the, the person, the vice chairman of uh, Toronto Raptors fired. Uh, Rogers owns a chunk of the Toronto Raptors, as does some other people, and he just didn't like this person, and he wanted to get him fired. Fans of the Raptors were thrilled when this vice chairman came back for, for another run. So he's been acting erratically now for a couple of months. I, I, I don't know what's behind it. There will be a book in this one day, Bill. Someone is going to <laughs> open the door, and we're going to see what the workings were at the top. But I've just never seen anything like this before, and, and I, I hope it ends soon. Uh, to that point, you're right about the Raptors' involvement and, and Rogers' involvement with them. And, and the other story I heard is that the general manager, Masai Ujiri, uh, who was getting offers from New, you know, the, the, the Knicks in New York and other teams, and Raptor fans were apoplectic, please keep him, please keep him. And apparently now we find out that behind doors, this guy was got, trying to get him fired. He says he didn't want him anywhere around here. Uh, we never got the explanation as to why, but that's it seems so contrary uh, to what both the Raptors and the Raptors fans wanted to do. So you, I guess it speaks to the credibility of Mr. Rogers and exactly where he was going from on this. Uh, yeah, Bill, it's, the, it's the same with Joe Natale. We just do not have a cogent argument why he's the wrong guy to lead the company at this time. Maybe there, Maybe Mr. Rogers is right, but he needs to share this with us rather than keep his cards close to his vest. 
is, is there anything here that uh, maybe Ed Rogers was looking at this way to say blood is thicker than water? The way that uh, uh, Mrs. Rogers, his mother, has is, is acted on this, uh, that's not really the case here. It's, it's all about the bottom line and, and competency, I guess. Yeah, I should say it a little differently. You know, he may have thought that he could either bully his mother and his sisters, or as you say, blood is thicker than water and they'll always support me forever. And he's had a very interesting lesson in this, that family is family and business is business, and sometimes neither of the two shall meet. Uh, no nepotism in that family, or at least not when it comes to this anyway. Is, is, what's this going to do to the credibility of the company, though? Well, is this a- an aberration? Yeah, so let me go down two rounds there quickly, Bill. If you're a Rogers customer, don't panic, don't worry. Edward Rogers is not the one who's plugging you into the system and and cranking up the Internet. So your services will be fine. Everything that way is going to be just fine. But that's the second point is the credibility. Uh, I don't think Ed Rogers can become chair again immediately. He will have lost so much credibility in the business community. You know, where are you coming from? Does this actually have the board support, or is this another one of your crazy ideas, Edward? He needs a timeout. I, I, I hate to use a childish term like that, but he needs a timeout. He needs to regroup, needs to get his head together. He could return down the road as chair of the board, but at this point he is badly damaged, and the more he pursues these sort of crazy ideas, the more damaged he becomes. And does this hurt the uh, the takeover of Shaw? Is, or is that, does this hit the pause button on this, or is that going to proceed? Well, at this moment, it, it, you just take Edward out of the equation. You've got a board who is supportive of acquiring Shaw. You've got a CEO who's been working at it. Their next step was to try to raise some capital to allow this all to happen. I think they need roughly $20 billion in the marketplace. The, the other players, I, I think, can still make this happen. But the more Edward rattles uh, swords and rings bells and, and stands and yells, the more people are going to say, I, I don't know, this, this looks uh, like you know, maybe I should stay away from something like this. He could be endangering the whole thing. I'm not sure it is at this moment, but the more he does this, the more of these power plays he comes up with, the more in danger it becomes. As you say, there's a book in here someplace. I can hardly wait. Uh, Marvin, as always, thanks for this. Great having you on the show again today. Glad to be with you, Bill. Take care. Marvin Ryder, of course, a business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.